Hello everyone, hope you're doing well. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod, based out of the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. I'm your host, Sruthi Palniyapin, and today we're taking a look at one of the most important issues of the 21st century that will help define societies for decades to come. And it's how we deal with technology. In particular, we'll be examining the rise of big tech companies, trying to explain what exactly makes them different from other businesses and what consequences these bring, not just for the broader economy, but for our own personal lives. In recent years, the United States and the European Union have taken more aggressive actions to check these big tech firms through antitrust or competition law. We'll shed light on what antitrust attempts to do, and more importantly, try to answer the question of whether or not it's the right tool to solve the problems associated with big tech. We're really lucky to have three proper experts as our guests for this episode. First, we'll be going into the key issues associated with the power these big tech companies hold and how antitrust law can correct for some of these. Then we'll take a look at how a lot of these considerations might be different in the context of developing countries. And finally, we'll hear about other solutions beyond antitrust that could help create more sustainable and effective tech policies in the future. Let's dive right in. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. They control the data, our personal data. They control so many aspects of our lives. We are trying to grow these industries in the developing economy context. I totally agree we need to tackle tech and regulate it, make it work for this next century. Why are we talking about using the 20th century's tool to do that? Microsoft was a perfect example of a company that had gotten so big and so clunky that its products started to stink. Professor Gigi Sohn is a distinguished fellow at the Georgetown Law Institute for Technology, Law and Policy, a senior fellow at the Benton Institute for Broadband and Society, and the host of her very own podcast, Tech on the Rocks. For 30 years, Gigi has worked to defend and preserve the fundamental competition and innovation policies surrounding broadband internet access. And just a few weeks ago, she was cited by Axios as one of the seven people to watch who would likely drive the Biden administration's tech policy. Professor Sohn, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Awesome. So I want to talk about these major tech companies. I mean, they are massive in scale and these antitrust issues surrounding big tech companies have moved into the mainstream political discourse that we've seen recently. I want to even look back at the 2020 U.S. presidential election when we saw prominent U.S. Democratic candidates calling to break up big tech. So why has this become a high profile political issue? And what are some of the major competition issues you see in relation to big tech? Well, first, I want to say that antitrust issues have become important to the American people across the board. So big tech is usually the example that you hear because Facebook is sexy and Google is sexy and Amazon is sexy and Apple is sexy. But we have so much consolidation uh, in the U.S. economy. Think of airlines. Think of cable and telecommunications and broadband companies. Think of healthcare, pharmaceuticals. I mean, just about you know, any important industry that's part of the U.S. economy is consolidated. But big tech, again, because 
it, it's so much a part of almost everybody's lives. Uh, they've kind of become the poster child for what's wrong with antitrust law. What's wrong with it, in my opinion, anyways, is too weak. A lot of the problem is that these companies have become so large and so powerful, and they use that bigness and that power to snuff out competition and to harm consumers. So understand that U.S. antitrust law, is that illegal to be big? Okay, you can be huge, right? But when you use that bigness and the power that you get from being that big to harm competitors and harm competition and harm consumers, that's when it starts to be illegal. So I think the overall concern is you have a handful of companies that control our economy. I mean, they control our public discourse. They control the data, our personal data. They control so many aspects of our lives that people are saying, wait a second now, and they are essentially unregulated and you can't sue them successfully for antitrust violations. Yeah. And when you're talking about the harms to consumers, and I want to look at that consumer welfare standard, which we know is the current policy framework under which you would be able to file a lawsuit. What are the types of consumer harms that it covers? It's very narrow, and that's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, you just saw Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota uh, put out a pretty comprehensive bill to try to fix these things. I think you will see in the next several months, uh, the House uh, Antitrust Subcommittee Chair David Cicilline will put out a bill of his own. So it really only addresses, for the most part, prices. And I want to look at some specific examples when we're talking about how these companies have gotten so big. Some of these examples, as you mentioned, do fit the traditional bill of also involving prices. And I want to look at Amazon first. So Amazon, when you go and visit the site, as many of us do, and you want to buy something, one of the first products that you often see is the Amazon Basics product. And it's often cheaper than a lot of the other brands. And obviously, you can also get it with Amazon Prime and get free shipping. So why is it that these products are often cheaper than some of the other ones you would see on the website? And what allows Amazon to sell products in this way? So why is Amazon able to sell products so cheaply? They're able to sell it so cheaply because they engage in what one would call predatory pricing. So in other words, they lose money in order to undercut competition, right? So they purposefully price objects, uh, goods, lower than what the market will bear in order to undercut the competition. And that is supposed to be illegal. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but again, uh, are you and I as a consumer benefiting? Perhaps. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think overall, if you look at the bigger picture, we're not. But if you're looking at the you know dollars and cents in your pocketbook, we're benefiting. The other thing that you alluded to was Amazon using its control over the platform and over the content to favor its own its own goods, right? It's it's Amazon branded goods. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, particularly the left, the progressive community is looking at here and saying, why should companies, you know, like Facebook, like Google, like Amazon, be able to control not only the platform, 
but also the content on that platform. So similar with Google and YouTube, right? Or Google and, and, and any of the other products, the 200 companies that Google owns. And shouldn't those two be separated, right? Shouldn't Amazon, the platform where you sell things, uh, not be owned by the same company that owns Amazon Basics or yeah. you know every or Amazon Web Services? Mm-hmm. So that functional separation you're saying between being a marketplace provider and being a seller within that very marketplace. Correct. So then, when we're talking about the actual impact on the consumer, because as you said, for the consumer right now, it still seems beneficial. I mean, you're able to get these products pretty cheap and it doesn't seem as if it'd be a big issue. So then what are some of the longer term implications this would have on the consumer? Could we see lack of choice or potentially um, Amazon even raise their prices later on? Right. We're already seeing lack of choice, right? We're seeing companies go out of business or be swallowed uh, by Amazon. And yes, the the party is not going to last forever. You know, the prices will go up. uh, And in a lot of cases, they already have gone up. So yeah, I mean, look, (laughs) over the last 12 months, I've tried my level best, even though I I, I do have Amazon Prime, uh, to buy from other retailers, uh, you know, to buy simple things like, you know, uh, soap or, you know, cleaning fluid. And it's been almost impossible. So you're you're left going back to Amazon over and over and over again. And I do attribute that to uh, Amazon's power. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you try to get something that Amazon doesn't have, but, you know, between shipping charges and, and you know, other fees, you, you just end up throwing up your hands and say, forget it. I'm not going to get it. So, yeah, I think you see less consumer choice, you know, higher prices, if if not now, soon, uh, and uh, just overall, just you know, bad for the economy. I want to ask about another company that we know has also faced a lot of antitrust lawsuits in recent years, and that's Google. As you said, each of these companies have their own unique issues, and Google's are in relation to the search engine market, which they control over 90% of. So just this past December, as we know, nearly 40 U.S. states came together and filed a lawsuit alleging that Google has used anti-competitive practices to protect its monopoly over the search engine market and inhibit rival search engines such as Bing or Yahoo from gaining traction. So what has led Google to this dominant position? So they've basically been allowed to grow unabated. They have acquired in the last, you know, decade, decade and a half, 200 companies. And some of them are some of, you know, household names, Android, right? So they, 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 they bought the Android system that they use on mobile phones. DoubleClick, which is that, you know, that's the, that, that's the data collection company. And I'll talk about that in a second. AdSense, YouTube, Nest, Fitbit, Waymo. They've, they've been able to grow unabated and the average person should care because you know for the same reason why people at the turn of the 20th century cared deeply about you know the rise of big oil companies and and railroad companies it, it's not good for democracy it's not good for the public discourse it's not good for your privacy it's not good for the economy to have a handful of dominant players. And already I've seen it myself. And I was an early Google adopter. 
the quality of their search and the whole, the whole user experience, in my opinion, has is become degraded. I'm just like you know the the homepage is just like you know every time we do a search is littered with you know links I couldn't care less about and and ads everywhere. And so you know I, I find that the entire you know um, I find that the entire experience is less pleasurable than it used to be, and frankly, less useful. So a lot of the company's executives have argued that the bigger they can get, the more resources they have, and the more integrated those services are, and therefore the higher quality of services they're able to provide. So you don't buy that argument. I don't buy that. That that argument is as old as, you know, as old as the Bible, really. I mean, oh, yes, you know, uh, you know, efficiencies of scale and, you know, what happens though, and look, Microsoft is a perfect example of this. You know, I'm not, I'm not pulling Microsoft into the general conversation. Microsoft was a, was a perfect example of a company that had gotten so big and so clunky as products start to stink. So what is holding up Congress from being able to pass anything on this, from regulators being able to act? Yeah, well, first of all, we don't have regulators, and that's actually part of the problem. I would actually like to see a digital platform agency that exercises oversight over these companies. So there's no regulation of these companies, period, right? Other than, you know, regulation that affects all other companies like taxes and that sort of thing. But anything specific to this industry, there's no regulatory agency. And my feeling is it's long past, we're long past due for it. Before we wrap up, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about what we can expect from the Biden administration, especially since you've been noted as someone really likely to shape their policy. So what do you expect from them? Do you think that the U.S. will work with the EU and we could see some harmonization there? Will they be more forceful with antitrust law? So I don't know if we're going to see harmonization between the EU and the U.S., what I feel quite confident about in the Biden administration is that they're going to use every tool in their at their disposal. So, you know, I expect both the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, which are the two big antitrust uh, enforcement agencies in the U.S. government, to really uh, hit this very hard. And again, they're going to focus on big tech for sure, but I don't think that's going to absolve the other industries like airlines, like pharmaceuticals, like healthcare, uh, like telecom. That's not going to absolve them from scrutiny. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what changes, if at all, occur in the coming years. But Professor Stone, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a super engaging and thought-provoking conversation. Well, I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Our next guest is Commissioner Johannes Bernabe from the Philippine Competition Commission. He previously served as the Philippines trade negotiator at the World Trade Organization before coming home to consult for the Philippine Congress and its passage of the country's antitrust law in 2015. He was then appointed commissioner and has been helping lead the institution and in its fight for a more level playing field for businesses in the Philippines. Now, developing countries are clearly not immune from the problems brought about by big tech. However, many considerations appear to be different in these places. To explore these issues further, I'm going to turn it over to Oxford Policy Pod correspondent, Paolo Tejano, who's joined by Commissioner Bernabe. 
Thank you very much for joining us on the Oxford Policy Pod, Commissioner Bernabe. It's really an honor to be able to speak with you. Thank you, Paolo. It's a privilege on my part. So I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us about the importance of fostering competition in an economy like the Philippines. And in particular, what has the Philippine Competition Commission done in the tech space recently? Competition policy is key in our development strategy, particularly for a developing country like the Philippines, where you see that the economy has traditionally been dominated by large players. There has been a huge concentration of economic power in the hands of a few entities. So competition policy is key in terms of allowing other market participants in terms of allowing small, micro, and medium-sized enterprises to have a share in this economic growth that we are trying to foster. The Commission's mandate is to monitor and review mergers, which might tend to substantially lessen competition. Now, some of these mergers have already taken place in the big tech uh, industry. When we look towards global headlines coming out of the West in relation to technology and competition. We see the U.S. congressional hearings on big tech firms, and we see that the European Union, through its competition commission, is also taking big steps in trying to rein in these firms. What can the Philippines learn from this? An important consideration when looking at the experience of the U.S. and the EU in dealing with big tech is that one has to bear in mind that the Philippines is still at its nascent stage of dealing with the digital economy. Sure, we are on the e-commerce bandwagon and online payment systems are beginning to proliferate, but it is not at the level or at the level of sophistication that the U.S. and EU markets are at. Currently, the Philippines, like many other developing countries, are focused on developing technology as a lever for development. We want to be able to ensure that ordinary citizens, ordinary consumers are able to avail of e-commerce, are able to use online payment systems in order to increase the flow of goods and services, in order to ensure that in a post-pandemic world, for instance, convenience and safety considerations are paramount in terms of allowing consumers to avail of these kinds of technologies. So it is a question of whether at this point we should already try to rein in some of these big tech companies and be strict about the kind of behavior that they engage in, the kind of mergers or acquisitions that are happening in the U.S. and in the EU, which need to be subjected to strict scrutiny. Should they be subjected to the same level of scrutiny in the Philippines? Should anti-competitive behavior adjudged as such in the U.S. and in the EU necessarily be seen in the same context in the Philippines? Given that we are trying to grow these industries in the developing economy context, A question that always gets asked is, how are we going to ensure that companies which are providing these e-commerce services, which are providing these online payment services, are able to expand their business efficiently such that they can provide their services to as wide a base of consumers as possible if we are already going to regulate and rein in their ability to conduct business 
in a way which allows them to grow. Obviously, it's a careful balancing act between trying to ensure that these businesses grow so that e-commerce, so that the digital economy gets on full swing in the Philippines, but at the same time being mindful enough and watchful enough to know that some of these behavior, some of these agreements that they might be entering into are anti-competitive. A lot of the digital services that are also in use in the Philippines aren't by Filipino companies, right? For example, we know that that Facebook, obviously, is very, very widely used in the country. And I was thinking about how decisions that are made by competition authorities in the United States and the European Union certainly have an effect on how things pan out in the Philippines. What do you have to say to this? And shouldn't the Philippine Competition Commission be working closely with other competition authorities? Because this seems to be a global problem, doesn't it? Right. So that's a challenge because we also have to be aware that the EU, for instance, has the leverage. The U.S. obviously has the leverage to impose those fines because their markets are so big that these big tech companies have no other choice but to continue functioning in those markets and they'll have to pay the fines that are imposed on them. But if in a country like the Philippines, which is a smaller market for these big tech companies, and given the relative youth of our competition agencies, if we impose a fine a similar magnitude as the EU, will these big tech companies actually pay up? What is the cost to them if they're not able to do business in the Philippines? It may not be much. So what will happen is that we may be left with an empty bag where we try to impose a fine. That fine is not paid. We lose our credibility in the international community as well as in our domestic markets. So for a young competition agency, again, that is a careful balancing act that we have to manage and make sure that while we are keen to sanction anti-competitive acts and behavior, this does not cost us credibility uh, in terms of the business community and our peers in the international competition community. Commissioner Johannes Bernabe, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paolo. It's been a pleasure on my part as well. Our final guest is acclaimed UK tech journalist and author, James Ball. James is the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. He's written for many of the world's top news organizations and played a key role for The Guardian and its Pulitzer Prize-winning coverage of the NSA leaks by Edward Snowden. James has recently written thought-provoking articles on technology and public policy for Wired. And just last year, he published his most recent book entitled the system, who owns the internet, and how it owns us. OPP correspondent Adam Flaherty speaks now with James Ball to explore the issues of social media networks and his ideas on going beyond antitrust to create more holistic solutions to solve this problem. James, thank you for coming on the show today. I just first want to talk to you a little bit about social media. So I feel like whenever I'm not working, most of my screen time is spent on some app. You know, I remember my friend's birthdays on Facebook. 
I get workout motivation by looking at my more beautiful friends on Instagram. I get people's political hot takes on Twitter, especially during the pandemic. So much of our social lives feel like they go through a few companies. How did we get to this kind of concentration and consolidation uh, in, in the online parts of our social lives? Um, it actually kind of quite strangely happened because the internet was built in a really lightweight manner. You sort of forced the, the common spaces of the internet to be private. And so the town square in your town is, you know, it might actually be private if you live in the UK, um, but generally your town square or your gathering places are largely public in the real world online they've ended up actually sort of by virtue of the way the technology is designed being these huge private sector gathering places um that's sort of you know obviously any gathering place as well is only going to work if the people you want to see are there which is why we don't have a million social networks each with a few million users of whom you'll know two or three people will you know, just through the standard network effect, go to where people are. So that's really interesting. So because of this legacy of how we built the internet, we have these these private places where we want to gather. Um, so we've got these private companies running those spaces. How do these companies make their money? Like what's what's keeping them afloat? I mean, the, the old axiom of the internet is if you're not paying for an online service, you are not the consumer, you are not the customer, you are the product. Um, and so, you know, your your attention is the product. What they want is to be able to show you adverts. And if places are good at showing you adverts that might at least be somewhat relevant to you, they become immensely profitable in a fairly non-nefarious way. They want to show you adverts that are relevant and interesting to you. And so the more data they have that helps them do that, the, so the logic goes, especially when data collection is cheap, data storage is cheap, and there's not much in policy to restrict you getting it. They want to sort of serve you a product that you will keep using, that the ads won't disrupt your experience, but they'll be useful enough that enough people click and go through and use them. I'm wondering why should the average person be concerned about, you know, consolidation in social media under those circumstances? You know, we've just got good guy Mark over here trying to target mattresses at us. Why is this a problem? And, and why do we hear things? I don't know if you heard there was a presidential election in the United <laughs> States last year. And one of the things that was discussed was breaking up companies like Facebook. So why should we care? Why is this a hot topic right now? What, what's going on? So it's a little bit glib, but if Mark Zuckerberg is worried about the amount of power Mark Zuckerberg has, all the rest of us should be really worried about it. Um, you know, he's the guy on the top of the pyramid of one social network with 2 billion daily users and two other social networks, each with nearly 2 billion users. Those are often the same people. But, the, you know, Facebook's two main competitors are Instagram and WhatsApp, and Facebook owns them both. Um, that is such a huge slice of the world's information economy and communications technology that no one has held that before internationally. And for all that they say they don't want to make editorial 
control decisions about that or can't make editorial decisions about that. They can and they do. Once you've got one third of the world's population on your network, even the smallest decision is quite impactful on defining the public space. Now, when your networks are used for adverts for very major elections and very polarized elections and elections where there are fears of violent action or more, and you know, the US is the one we all tend to look to, but you could look at India, you could look at all sorts of other countries where there are concerns around how Facebook ads are used and especially that they're used to polarize or generate hate. And you suddenly have one man responsible for some of the most delicate decisions about the limit of speech, the limit of violence, the problems of polarization, questions that usually in liberal democracies, we say belong with the government as a proxy for the people. Suddenly, actually, it does matter what's said on these private companies, because there are alternative to WhatsApp, but they only work if the people that you need to talk to are on there. And so they're not quite a free consumer choice either. I think one way historically that we've dealt with problems like this is through antitrust law. So when Senator Warren stands in front of the country and says, we need to break these companies up, I think that's where that legacy comes from. What might be different about social media companies that that makes that maybe not the perfect approach for their particular problems? So usually when someone comes and says, hey, I don't think antitrust law is the right tool here, they kind of suggest it's using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. It's too strong. It's, you know, how could you bring it in? Um, You know, I'd say it's sort of more akin to trying to use a sledgehammer to crack the planet. Um, It's just, you know, it's the wrong tool and it's not strong enough anyway. Let's look at breaking up Facebook. They are making it harder to do, but certainly for most of the last five years, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook have operated on different technological backends. And so you could have severed them and broken it up into three companies. But then you've got three companies, each handling more than a billion users a day. And what problem have you actually solved there? Like each one of them still has a huge degree of control. Each one of them is still sort of managing and monetizing your data without sharing any of the proceeds with you except through services. And so suddenly it's like, well, we've broken it up and what got better? Antitrust, you've got this sort of problem of, I look at the US and the EU as the only jurisdictions big enough to credibly threaten big tech with being broken up. And in neither place does the law actually look strong enough to do it. And so for me, it's it's like, yeah, I totally agree we need to tackle tech and regulate it and make it work for this next century. Why are we talking about using the 20th century's tool to do that? So I guess the natural question is, what do this century's tools or what should this century's tools look like for addressing some of these problems? What are the options outside of antitrust that we can use uh, to make this work? So I think there's a variety of it, but it tends to come down to, you know, looking at protocols and looking at standards. So you could just at a very basic level go, people should be able to migrate from one to the other with similar following relationships. 
you know, if someone I follow on Twitter moves here, do I want to automatically follow them? Yes, no, ask me each time. You know, you could give users control. They're deliberately not interoperable. There's deliberately not an open standard because the social networks want to keep you where you are. You could similarly make it possible to message people across platforms. If you're friends with someone on one network, why can't you just send one message and it'll get to them where they are? You know, email doesn't mean that you can only email someone else on Gmail. And if you want to email someone on Hotmail, you have to get a Hotmail account and you want to. And we would think it's completely ludicrous to have to do that. And yet on social media, we accept these weird restrictions that only suit the companies. And we like to kind of go, data is the new oil. You know, let's say an oil company goes up to someone's back garden, finds oil there. They don't get to then go, hey, well, we're the ones that know what to do with this oil. This oil to you is worthless. You don't know how to refine it. You don't know how to do anything with it. This oil is ours now. But, you know, as a thank you for letting us have it, we're going to buy you a really nice hamper at Christmas every year. (laughs) Like, no, if the oil is on your land, the oil is yours even if you can't turn it into anything of value. Um, that's how it is with our data. We can't turn it into anything of much value. Um, Google can, Facebook can, other people can. Why do they get to keep it all? So given that dynamic, you know, I know you've written about the idea that all these things create a, a need for a new kind of social compact. What does that look like for you? Yeah, so for me, I think we can look back on what we were doing in the Industrial Revolution. And that technology was clearly had the potential to build a better and a richer world. But it did not intrinsically distribute that evenly. And it actually really, really screwed a lot of people over. And we tend to sort of look at the innovations of that era and, you know, the railway sort of coal, you know, steal all of this and think about trust busting and think about breaking up the monopolies and handling that. But actually the way we made the industrial era work for most of us, the the benefits got shared out, not just because of antitrust law, but because the modern welfare state grew in the industrial era. The industrial era caused a whole new social contract of, you know, healthcare systems being set up of different sorts uh, ed- formal education being established, trade unions grew out of it, which grew workers' rights, which grew wages, which sort of created more. So we're in the information era now. What are the pack of measures that we need that make sense in an information era? You know, do we need something? Some people think we need things like universal basic income. Uh, as we increase in automation? Do we need to be thinking about that? Do we need to think about data, not as a privacy problem, but as a revenue issue or as a sort of thing to do with that? Do we need to look at international standards? What are the ways in which we need to change society so that we're not trying to use the industrial era's laws and social compact and tools for a new technological age? And I don't know what the technologically or a social contract looks like i don't think anyone does yet but i do think you can argue the world has changed enough since the early 20th century that it is time that we're examining all of that again it it sounds like what you're saying is we just need more sweeping political and social changes to go along with those drivers 
Yeah, and I don't think the road to that will be smooth and together, and I don't think it will be everyone coming and sitting at a table and going, right, that social contract, let's get that rewritten then. You know, <laughs> I think in the 20th century, these will, will have felt like separate fights and separate struggles at the time, with only a few people kind of going, hey, these all have the same underlying cause. Um, and I think that's what it's going to feel like now. There'll be lots of different pressure points and sort of aggro points that blow up and create new types of legislation and new types of protection. But I do think the connecting thing under it will be this sort of online era, information era technology. Thank you so much. And it was a pleasure having you on the show today. It's uh, really nice chatting to you. So I love, I love talking about this stuff. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Oxford Policy Pod, where we try to parse through some of the issues surrounding big tech companies and what governments can do to solve these issues. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Oxford Policy Pod underscore and on Twitter at Oxford Policy Pod. The executive producer for this season of OPP is Leanne Ryan Hume. And this episode was produced by Paulo Tejano and Adam Flaherty and edited by Paulo Tejano and Alicia Aslan. We hope to see you again in two weeks' time as we look at the war in Syria 10 years on.